0: Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basilica, Director of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid Year Clinical Meeting that focuses on the best practices and actionable steps that you can use in your practice to make meaningful changes towards a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive team and organization. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists.
1: presentation. We'll start with a few definitions, but we won't go into this as a full primer as ASHP has immense amount of resources for you to explore, as well as a number of other organizations. But just in general, when we talk about diversity, this is what uniqueness people bring to a setting, whether that's work or outside of work. It's all the ways that people differ in which they can be valued and understood. Equity ensures that there's fairness of procedures, policies, and access to resources. And note, that I didn't say equality, because it's important to note that equity and inequality are not the same. And then finally, we have inclusion. Inclusion is important as this ensures that departments create a sense of belongingness, create a culture where everyone is feeling welcome, because without inclusion, diversity and equity measures really can be stifled. It's important that we create a culture of inclusion so that we're not just checking boxes, providing resources, and say that we've achieved diversity equity without the inclusion. We can have people of different backgrounds put any kind of policy and procedure in the place, but if those diverse voices aren't heard or people are afraid of using policies and procedures for an equitable workplace, you can see how this can be limiting the DEI initiatives. One thing that sometimes I hear is that when I come to work, I'm in healthcare, I treat patients all the same and equally, I leave whatever politics or beliefs that I have at the door when I come to work. And while that might be something nice to think about, it's really hard for people to dichotomize that from a psychological standpoint. And really, when we think about the individual, we have a combined self, which is all the characteristics and factors that make us us. It's those factors that are historical of how we were raised. They may be impacted by social factors, patient factors. There's factors within the department, such as culture and institution, that really all come together. And so when we think about DEI initiatives, we really need to be thinking about not dichotomizing those roles and thinking how as an individual can we contribute to a diverse equitable and inclusive workplace. Within the profession we were able to take a look across lots of organizations and it's really exciting to see how All of these major national organizations across different specialties even, have started engaging in DEI task force, committees, communities, working on different policies and white papers. But we need to be thinking ahead as well. A lot of these at least embarked in 2020. Some of them did have initiatives prior to this, but a lot of the work has been done more recently. So we need to think about this work, how important it is and continue that. If we look at our profession from a composition standpoint, Many people are aware that from a gender composition, this has changed dramatically over the last decade where women make up almost two thirds of the population in pharmacy practice. But if you look at the number of leadership positions, this isn't as equitable as the actual composition, and it's lagging. Research suggests maybe there's about more of an equal split between men and women in leadership positions, and certainly there's going to be a lag of this because of the number of positions available. But we need to be mindful of this and think about who we're bringing to the table as candidates to these leadership positions based on the changing demographics over the past decade. In our profession, from a racial diversity standpoint, certainly you can see a clear clear disparity here between those represented in white groups versus asian black and other other being the terminology that was used in the national pharmacist workforce study and not my specific term it's just how the study had characterized those individuals and while there's been growth over time doubling in some populations there's certainly a lot of work that still needs to be done And so when I think about that work, what Lydia will be talking about later in terms of the DEI initiatives, we need to start thinking not necessarily about the demographics or the diversity or policies in our workplace, but we need to think about those candidacy pools of who we're bringing in, how we're recruiting, where we're recruiting for residencies, internships. We need to think about the pools into colleges of pharmacy, and really how we can circle back to the community to help improve all of these efforts. And so with that, while this presentation won't focus primarily on diversity equity, and inclusion of pharmacists in practice and patient care, I do think you know we need to not only think about within our profession, but also concepts of DEI related to improving patient care and outcomes and how all of those factors and how pharmacists can make an impact in community settings, hospital settings, and really any setting that a pharmacist is employed. There's also potential for pharmacists to be involved in research, education, practice, changing policies, being an advocate for public health, policies, improving health literacy that may be lacking. So we'll shift gears a little bit, having done some introductory discussion, to how our department actually went upon creating the initial framework for what we hope is a sustainable DEI program. As with any initiative, there was a little bit of baseline information that we needed to obtain. So perceptions, observations of our staff. And so a survey was sent out across what we call our Midwest health system, which included Minnesota and parts of Wisconsin. A survey to pharmacists, technicians, Administrative assistants, and really anybody in the Department of Pharmacy. There are questions pertaining to observations of discrimination and bias, self reflections on one's own unconscious biases, comments for where individuals thought there could be improvements within our department, and then opportunities for free text comments. And so this survey went out to about 600 individuals. For this question, we had a response rate of 141 individuals reply. Questions weren't mandatory, so there weren't forcing functions within the survey. So people could skip questions. And so that's why you'll see a different number for different questions of those that replied. But in terms of observations or experience discrimination, more than half of those that replied said that they didn't observe any discrimination. Whereas there was 39 pharmacists that observed discrimination on at least one occasion, and about 20 pharmacists that had seen discrimination on multiple occasions. So this is really is an indication that there is a discrepancy between those that might be experiencing or observing or being attuned to discrimination within the department to those that may not be aware that it's happening at all. And so those are things that, as we were forming our work group, things to think about and how we target various initiatives and in education. The next question that was asked was related to observations or experiences experiences of unconscious bias and this was pretty similar to the previous question related to discrimination or overt discrimination where about half of the respondents hadn't observed unconscious bias at all where 44 and 35 pharmacists had observed unconscious bias at least once and so again the discrepancy between those that are observing and those that weren't observing For those that had observed or experienced discrimination or bias, they had an opportunity to say what type of discrimination or bias they either experienced or observed. And the leading number of respondents had indicated that there were gender discrimination or biases, followed by communication, race, and age being also in the top number of categories and so, following up with other questions related to reported opportunities, pharmacists, and we summarized this to be broad categories. There were those that thought there should be changes to interviews, questions related to how the department would address implicit biases that were observed or experienced. Some thought that there should be more education and awareness. Others thought there should be improved community to increase belongingness within the department. Others thought there should be more celebratory efforts and being more mindful of our department's diversity. Also increasing opportunities for staff and improving mentorship. Additionally, there were some comments that said there really wasn't anything that could be done additionally, comments that the department was already doing a great job or that enough was being done. And so as our group were, was thinking about that, certainly there was a, a little bit of work that we had to do in terms of education. Just to summarize of some of the broad categories that were found within the free text summaries, there were some that you know thought this was a great initiative that the leadership and this group took the time to explore the staff and their thoughts and their observations. There were several comments related to how, somebody would even go about improving their knowledge people had interest in these things and so again informing people about resources available whether through organizations or through our own institution and there were a handful of comments saying that they didn't appreciate the survey as it was felt as attempt to dig up racism And so with that background, I'll hand it over to Dr. Lydia Patel, who will continue more about how the Diversity Council came to be and some of the current initiatives that are ongoing.
2: All right. Thank you, John. I will now talk about some of the considerations we had when we were embarking on this journey and share a little bit about what we learned once we took the initiative over from leadership. The first step for us was setting up a vision we knew we were focusing on substantive change and we determined that there were three main areas that we want to work on first we recognize that inequities can be baked into the system in everyday practice in policy so we decided this would be a key part of our whole vision the second part is having the right metrics what gets measured can get done and so measuring only superficial diversity is not enough part of the vision is to foster this area of research to help define what kind of systemic change we even need and to measure the impact after we make those policy changes. Lastly, education, I'm sure you're all familiar with. We need everyone on staff to be part of this culture shift and there should be no opting out. Once we came to an agreement on this vision, then we formalized it into writing in our department's 10-year plan, and we also made sure it's in alignment with the broader institutional vision on DEI effort. We then created subcommittees to work on each of these three areas. So having determined what the vision is, where are we at baseline? That's the second component I'd like to talk about. John had already shared a survey that we completed to do a baseline needs assessment. Additionally, we also had some reporting from human resources that provided basic demographics on the people who work here, what kind of gender, race, what generation they belong to, some of the details in the recruitment process, like who is applying, who's interviewed, who is getting the offers, We are also getting some data on retention, academic rank, and promotion demographics. But that is kind of all we started with, and that leaves a lot of gaps. For example, what would be a reasonable benchmark? Is it national demographics, other large academic institutions? And some of that might depend on the position as well. We might use different benchmarks for like a clinical pharmacist position versus an office administrative staff. So we needed more granular data on each site and each position. And all of that is just still diversity data. How do we measure inclusion? We had that survey, but we have a few more options to look into, like engagement data, such as who is involving in research, involving themselves in precepting, uh, and is there a gap between groups, and other surrogate measures. As for recruitment data, we also need a little bit of information on why the numbers are the way they are to help target our interventions on systemic change. And lastly, there's wage data. And all of this is crucial for our understanding of our baseline. And this becomes the first charge for our research team. So knowing where we are, where we want to go, next we needed the people and resources to go make this happen. At our department, we decided that this effort would be best led by frontline staff who have a clear view of the day-to-day issues and the organizational culture. We were very intentional about wanting to build the right team because as a startup, credibility is everything from getting buy-in from the entire department. So having the right folks can ensure we hear important perspectives as we set our vision and build our machine. Our team currently consists of pharmacists, learners, technicians, and we have representation from across our Midwest practice sites, big and small. We also have a demographic that's 30% racial minority, 75% female, and we have representation from different religious backgrounds, members of the LGBTQ community, and we acknowledge that we're still missing some voices. We don't have colleagues with disabilities or staff who identify as part of the Indigenous community in our group yet. And that is a limitation that we hope to improve on as our team builds enough credibility to call different voices into this potentially vulnerable and time-consuming space. And as we improve the diversity of the department in general. I'm sharing all this considerations on demographics because I want to specifically highlight that It is a balance between wanting to amplify and center certain voices and give minorities the platform that they need while not disproportionately burdening only the minorities at the organization and expecting them and them alone to go provide all the education and effect change because that would in itself be inequity. We also intentionally wanted folks who are already strong activists in their own lives, but also complete beginners. We need people who are ready to go and ready to get to work on day one on a systems level. But we also see important value in bringing new people along because they provide a different perspective and they can read the audience better in terms of how do you get new people into this work. We needed our group to be creative, be ready to challenge the status quo and to hold each other accountable and stay focused. And so to get such a specific mix of people, we knew we couldn't rely on volunteers. On average, on a call that was sent out by leadership to solicit volunteers, folks who raised their hands were generally wanting education, awareness, which is fantastic, and we need them. But to get the folks who are ready to act on a policy level and who are already able to see the systemic issues and share our vision for targeting substantive change they were generally a little more cynical and a little more hesitant to lend their efforts to something that they worry could just be fluff. So we found it helpful to rely on some personal relationships to pull in the more skeptical colleagues to make sure we get the right kind of a team because again, as a startup, this is absolutely crucial. Besides having the right people, we needed resources. So we are given 0.2 FTE for the chair position for this council and 0.1 for the vice chair. Additionally, we have specific projects and there is a mechanism for requesting specific offline time that is protected. All of this is crucial because this work is time consuming and it can be uncomfortable. There has to be an incentive for staff to spend time away from teaching or research or other career opportunities that are traditionally more highly rewarded. And the department's willingness to contribute concrete financial support is telling of their commitment. We found that Incorporating learners has been mutually beneficial, and funding-wise, there are processes in place for requesting funds or applying for grants, either from the pharmacy department or the institution in general. Leadership support is also obviously important. Their sponsorship gives us access to policy meetings for proposing change, and their dedicated time working with us can help connect us with the right resources and set the tone for the entire department. Lastly, our team is solidified by organizational relationships because this effort can't exist in a silo. So we liaise with the Institutional Office of Equity and Inclusion and Diversity on the overall vision. We rely on HR for analytical support, and we work with a variety of specialty teams as well. So with all the systems in place, next is implementation. And here's what we've done in the past six months since we have started so based on the departmental interest in more education we've done some facilitated panel discussions we've provided some education on using pronouns we utilized a pharmacy week bingo challenge to encourage staff to do more of these educational activities and we are creating a small group discussion format for folks to meet over lunch with incentive of free food to get people talking about different dei topics Policy-wise, we have received endorsement from leadership to roll out a voluntary exemption for code pager duty for lactating and pregnant staff to fully support them during this demanding time. We're working with Infectious Disease Department in renaming vancomycin infusion reaction, so kind of going through all the changes in EPIC and education and communication related to the rollout. Currently, and probably for most of this next year, we will be heavily focused on all the pieces within recruitment and hiring, making sure we're getting a broad candidate pool, making sure our processes are equitable throughout the selection process. Research-wise, we've developed and sent out a survey for assessing professional engagement across demographics. The analysis is underway, and we hope that this will give us insight on inclusion issues and or barriers to promotion. We have also since refined some data from HR and we're working actively to define the goals as it relates to our hiring project. We started a new project in the management of acute agitation in ED and psych and looking at some disparities. And we've submitted a poster for a pre and post survey analysis of this education on code switching. We're only getting started and I'm proud of the momentum we've built. The one additional piece to consider as you roll out is communication. As we work behind the scenes to do a lot of these systemic changes, we know that a lot of these work is not visible other than the educational modules. And visibility matters, not because we need to get applauded for our work, but because it in itself is educational. There is a perception, at least in our department, that a lot of DEI has to do with individual awareness that the problem would be solved if everyone just somehow got rid of their biases, but that's not how it works. So being transparent about the parts of the system that aren't as inclusive or as equitable as we'd like and what we can do to change it can really open up people's minds to the possibilities. The visibility also frames the general credibility of the program, whether it's all fluff or symbolic gestures or do these people actually mean business? And the seriousness is what can help entice more serious members to join. And we know this works because we have new people wanting to come into the council after they are seeing what we're doing. Communication is also important externally. Given this is kind of an evolving field, it's important to have a forum to share best practices, to get peer review and feedback, and to have a forum for collaboration. Much of this we already do in our other work in terms of writing, research, posters, and this is no different. The only thing I would caution is that within this work, there's always business confidential rules. So make sure to check with your organization what the rules are on that. Lastly, I wanna highlight just a couple considerations on potential barriers. We know from our internal survey that there are people who will resist these efforts. And this group is going to be hard to reach with education. So some of it goes hand in hand with societal change. Some of it is beyond our scope as a workplace DEI initiative, but it's still important to plan for this audience and just try to reach them as best we can. Uh, We also made sure to have a contingency plan with our leaders should anything get out of hand. On the system side, the resistance comes more from inertia. It's hard to change the way things are because that's how they've always been, and these are long processes to get these changes going, and it can be exhausting and daunting to take these tasks on. But we also believe that if we can anticipate this, we can build a team that knows that going in, a team that is prepared for the long haul and is ready to hold each other accountable, and we can build the systems to make sure we have the time and resources to work through it again. So just being prepared can hopefully allow us to get to the change we're aiming for one step at a time we've learned a lot through this experience and i'd like to now just summarize everything in a toolkit that i would have given to my last year self and something i hope can be of use to our audience today i would first suggest starting with a broad long-term vision and then brainstorm shorter-term goals and then writing everything down into a business plan something you can share and then next I would review your institution's current status, where are you starting from? And most organizations already have some of this data, so make sure you go through and think about what's missing. The third step is crucial, and I would strongly advise using a team rather than one person, both in terms of greater credibility and just extra hands to help, but also for a broader perspective. And as you're forming a team, make it intentional to think about what voices are missing, what voices need to be amplified, make sure there's adequate resources. And I know it's kind of a luxury to have been given FTE, but aim towards getting what you can because time is so needed. Make sure you have strong support from leadership and the organization to get the buy in you need from the employees. And as you start rolling out, whatever your initiatives might be, make sure they're prioritized based on your organizational needs. There are many potential ideas of things you can work on and it can be easy to reach for a low hanging fruit, something that feels good, but have the courage to do the hard stuff and prioritize the efforts that can produce the long lasting changes you want. Lastly, develop a communication plan with staff. Define your purposes. Are you trying to provide education or establish credibility? And your methods might differ based on your goals. As much as possible, seek external collaborations and share your work and get new ideas.
0: Thanks so much for listening into today's episode. For more resources on incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion into your practice, visit ashp.org backslash dei. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts, and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 Major Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basilica from ASHP Official, and thanks for listening in.